Hi, this is Michael Scherer, and I'm sorry about the sound quality, but I'm traveling right now and did not have a chance to do an interview for Questions for the Sages. And so what I'd like to do is to rebroadcast a previous episode. This is a conversation that I had with Dr. Graham Schweig, also known as Garuda Das. I hope you enjoy this rebroadcast of a previous interview. Welcome to Questions for the Sages, a podcast from the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Michael Scherer. Today I was fortunate to interview Dr. Graham Schweig, also known as Garuda Das. He gave a Sunday open house talk and then agreed to sit down for an interview with me. This podcast makes public the discussion that we had. You can hear the Questions for the Sages podcast on questionsforthesages.com, the Questions for the Sages Facebook page, in the iTunes App Store, and on YouTube. Questions for the Sages? I'm Michael Schauer. Hello, you're listening to Questions for the Sages. I'm Michael Scherer, and today I'm very fortunate to be talking to Garuda Das, a.k.a. Graham Schweig. Correct. Yes, very, thank you for, for being on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. And uh, Graham Schweig, Dr. Graham Schweig, yes. is a uh, translator, author, lecturer, yoga teacher, um, an uh, expert in Sanskrit, and uh, have I left anything out? Oh, um, there's a, uh, even I have to look at the uh, CV to remind myself. Oh, that that's right. good enough. Yeah. That really is good enough, Michael. Yeah, yeah well, so thank you for talking with me. Um, and listeners won't be familiar with you. What, what should they know about you? Like, how, how would you describe yourself? So, since the age 13, I have been a practitioner of various forms of yoga. And since I'm well over a hundred now, give or take a few years. Could not tell. Could not tell, right? Okay. Uh, I've been practicing many decades and um, I have always been one to, um, on the one hand, live the life of a practitioner, serious practitioner on the one hand. and but, but gain the benefit of scholarly understanding and pursuit on the other. So when I used to go to yoga uh, workshops or, or studios back in the 60s, when yoga became something of a boom, um, I noticed that the practitioners were very sincere and very serious, very um, sincere, but they didn't, they, I, it was clear to me they lacked the knowledge of how to uh, read and understand and negotiate the ideas in the sacred yoga texts. So what were they doing if they couldn't do that? Well, you see, they would try to take the guidance of some commentarial writing that accompanied such texts, which was good. But even there, that's a different kind of look, the traditional teacher of yoga. Uh, the uh, the practitioners of yoga, who will often sort of dismiss the academic study because they're not practitioners. They're just armchair scholars, which is largely right. true. Right. But I wanted the benefit of the knowledge that an armchair, quote-unquote, scholar has, and also the benefit of deep, serious practice. Now, I noticed on your bio that you practice, one of the types of yoga you practice is the yoga of deep study of the scriptures, yes. of the yoga scriptures, that, that the studying of the scriptures is a yoga that you practice. Yes. Oh, yes. It's called Swadhyaya Yoga. And this means very deep probing uh, within oneself and doing it over and over and over and over. I mean, it is the life of a student in one sense. Yeah. But when you're doing it as a yoga, you're 
allowing this kind of study to impinge upon every part of your life. I should mention that uh, you have a translation of the Bhagavad Gita. You have the Dance of Divine Love, India's classic sacred love story, the Rasalila of Krishna. Mm -hmm. And um, these are on a page on your website. I'm going to link to these so that people can have access to them. Okay. Um, and in your writings, I noticed that you use the word divine a lot, and the word divinity. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think we all assume everybody knows what that means. Right, right. But I have, I'm not sure at all what that means. Okay, okay, good, good. Um, it's one way to u- avoid using the word God, although I'll usually start with the word God and gradually move the reader into divine. Why do I do that? The word God has uh, a lot of Abrahamic, powerful meanings, mm. which don't necessarily apply to Eastern traditions. And yet, it's the word we know. Now, divine is a, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a word derived from Latin. It's not that far in the word, but it is perhaps a little abstruse. And what I, the reason I like divine is I mean God, in certain ways, I mean the ultimate, I mean the supreme, I mean the, the, the ultimate reality. And I, I mean it to be a bit flexible. Because not everyone has the same conception of the ultimate. So, for example, the word God comes from the old German, Gotha. Gotha. And Gotha comes from the Sanskrit, Hutta which means the one to whom we make an offering. Hmm. Now, that would be an interesting meaning to keep, but the word God for 82% of Americans generally means God the creator. But God as a creator in India is something that's subcontracted out. Creation is not the same big deal as it is for Abrahamic traditions. But when you say... uh the person to whom you make an offering, what what the image that springs to mind is, uh, here's my taxes in return for which you let me live. Okay. Uh, that's sort of the, the mm-hmm. connotation to me. Uh, there's nothing in that, in my sort of, my, my immediate reaction to that, mm-hmm. to that phrasing that brings up something, what, ethereal? Um, imagination? Or <laughs> yeah, right. like... I, I'm, I'm finding this sort of very fungible line between uh, mm-hmm. God talk and uh, reality. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, to, the, the one to whom one would make an offering. Now, what I like about that is that, at, you see, India was the first truly pluralistic religion. That is to say, a religion that actually welcomes and accepts and delights in diversity. Abrahamic traditions began with a reaction to Egyptian religion, which symbolizes or or represents a a multiplicity within divinity, or or polytheism, if you will. Mm. And that and, 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 and the Jews were enslaved to that. So naturally, you want to do what you were not enslaved to. So there's only one God. So the, the whole myth of monotheism is there. And, and uh, I am a jealous God, the Abrahamic God says. And you shall not worship any other gods before me. And, but you see, in India, it's like, worship the very highest that you know, the very greatest that you love. That is your God, and that we will respect. Now, how is that different than just seeking status, and you're just uh, bow down to the highest status individual or thing you can find? Well, in one sense, you could say that a divinity or a God um, has an ultimate status. I mean, certainly, cosmically, he, she, or it would. Um, uh, in terms of reality, in terms of 
Uh, I mean, status really refers to state. Okay, mm. so you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, you know, as you honor me and 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 love me, I will, I will reciprocate with you, and then you will come to be like my state of being. So so it's it, it's it, when 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 a when a uh, iron, a piece of iron, is put in a fire in a very hot fire, it's as good as fire, when it was just iron before. So it's that connection, that association with divinity where we find our divine connections and selves. My, I suspect that because you are so immersed in these texts, for you, uh, divine and God are sort of, they're part of your everyday speech and thought. Right. But to an outsider, that's still a little, there's an opacity here there okay. that I'm having a, a little bit of trouble bridging. Okay. Like, when we talk about the divine, when we talk about God, um, what are we talking about? Hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, again, it depends on to whom you are placing that question. So if you are talking to the Abrahamic traditions, you're talking about the creator of the world, the creator of everything. In the Bhagavad Gita, you're talking about the ultimate creator of everything, but he's more the efficient cause. So he's beyond that. We're talking about a divinity who uh, loves interacting with all of the parts of creation that uh, he possesses. So you're talking about a, um, a relationship. You're talking about uh, um, an intimate connection with all that is. It's a mystical relationship. On the one hand, everything is part of the divine. On the other hand, the divine is something that, you, that must be sought. So the divine is everywhere, but yet the divine is nowhere. And, and both are appreciated. We praise what is everywhere. We, um, we seek and we strive for and we desire what is nowhere. And we want to find that. And both, both are divine. Well, how do you sort of counter the the perception that what's going on is that we're painting a idealized reality and then trying to enter our own painting? I actually like that analogy. I like that. Let's take it further. Okay. Okay. Art and religion are very similar in, 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 in parallel in, in ways. So how do we know when something is art? Mm. If I take my glasses here and I say, uh, Michael, this is art, but, but I can't just do that. The way you would know this is art, if uh, and it's a physical three-dimensional object, would be if I put it on a pedestal and I had a proper amount of space around it. It's, in other words, a frame. All art is art only when it's framed. The frame has the function of, uh, of, a, of, of a protection, of isolating it from the rest of existence, of, of, of conveying a focal point and something of beauty to someone. Mm -hmm. You know, my glasses are not particularly beautiful. But, but what is ultimately beautiful? See, that's the frame for yoga. That's the frame for a, a seeker. Now, in art, we are seeking things of this world. But in religion, we're seeking things of, of another world. And how, how do you know there's another world? Because of what is experienced and perceived um, eventually, and what persons who have experienced and perceived this other world convey to us. What they have experienced, they convey to us. And that is what scripture tells us. Scripture tells us this is what you can find if you know how to find it. Now, if this isn't too personal... Sure. Go ahead with anything. What have you found? Now, the problem with that question is not that it's personal. It's that um, I don't know how long you have. But in essence, what I have found is a, a, a closer and more developing relationship with what is supremely beautiful, playful, and delightful. 
and what um, is uh, uh, what is permeating through all of reality and constantly calling to me. That's that's a relationship, you know. That's that's something you cultivate. So you could say, you know, you love this friend, you know, in these this way or that way or the other way, but it's it's really something between you and that friend. I'm I'm an outsider of your friendship with that person. Uh, friendships are cl are closed one on one. Those are closed worlds. No one can enter into that. In fact, that's why threesomes are difficult. You know, because if one relationship is really activated deeply, that third person is going to be left out. So to activate a relationship with the divine actually includes all persons, includes all reality. It is what I'm framing. It is my picture. You're framing what exactly? All reality. As much as I can. Now, when I was 20 years ago, my frame was smaller. Mm -hmm. But as I mature, as I grow, my frame gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the point of the frame is, is to contain all that is picturing my, my beloved, my beloved divine. And that's what the picture's about. And that's the picture. The beloved divine is, is uh, particularly... Um... Well, we're at a Hare Krishna temple mm -hmm. uh, in in Potomac, Maryland. Beloved Divine is is a framing yeah. that seems much more particular to the Hare Krishna movement than to say, I don't know, any other denomination or or faith. Oh, I, let me let me uh, correct you on that. Okay, because you've got um, the Catholic mystics that also have their frame of a divine beloved. They see Christ that way. Mm -hmm. I've studied those things deeply in my own studies at places like Harvard and Chicago. And I've studied with some of the best scholars, and, they, and I've seen the, the, these amazing uh, treatises on, on, on this relationship. Again, from the outside, but I can appreciate quite a bit of what's going on on the inside. Now, uh, uh, what about the Sufis in yeah. Islam? The, the, mystic, the mystic Sufis, you know, they, 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 they're in love with God. They're absolutely in love with God. Um, uh, and then, of course, the bhaktas, as you find here. Yes. Um, oh, don't forget about the Kabbalists. Uh, the you know Kabbalah will also uh, cultivate. Now, cultivate a relationship that's intimate uh, with the divine. But each one of these has a different nuance. They have different mm, a flavor. Have different flavor. Different uh, ethos. They come from different traditions also. So there's a there's a different quality to each one. That's really quite beautiful, really. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you, I wanted to ask you, where's the juice? For you, what's the juiciest, most flavorful aspect of your relationship with the divine? I think I said it when I said, uh, what is, you know, uh, um, uh, ever-present, the ever-present, supremely beautiful, playful, and delightful uh, divinity. Playfulness is everywhere. It's even among the animals. Have you seen animals play? They, they play. They do. Uh, uh, beauty is, is in so much of this world. Now, there is a lot of ugliness in this world, too. It is a mixed world. And there's a reason for that. But while there is darkness, there is so much light that is in this world also. And there's, and there's so much to delight in, in this world. So the, the, to, to dwell, to be fortunate enough to dwell in the, in the beauty, in the, in the, the beautiful and the playful and the delightful, and know where all that comes from, I think is an extraordinary privilege. And... You know this framing that you're talking about, mm -hmm. and that you began talking about. Yes, and and you know you talked about how there's something there's something similar about the framing of the Kabbalists, the Sufis, the Catholic mystics, and the um, the Bhaktas. Right. So 
there is a sort of a, an idea, at least, that everyone is looking at the same thing or the same person, that there, there's slight variations, but that their object of love is the same. Okay. So, at a certain level of religion, I would say a lower level of religion, practitioners seem to need to understand it's the same person or the same being or the same existence. But, you know, one, if you and I, uh, Michael, went down to the National Gallery of Art, which I I grew up with, My, my mother used to take me down there all the time, but, you know, chances are you would find a painting that would just grip you. I mean, grip you deeply, would hold you there, and you would even forget about me. In the meantime, I'd be in another gallery, gripped by a painting so deeply, and I would forget that we came together. And one of us is going to have to remind each other we came together so we can go back together. So one of us doesn't get left out of the ride. But the idea is that getting lost, the, this, this Monet does not have to be Rembrandt. Why do they have to be the same? What's important here, Michael, and this is where the world needs to go, mm. in my opinion, it's about dialogue. It's about sharing. When I say my mother is the greatest mother in the whole world, I don't think you'll get offended because what you're perceiving is the love I have for my mother. But if I say, you know what, Michael, your mother doesn't, I know, she's just not a mother. I have the real mother. Your mother is not real. This is where we get the problem. Well, nobody, nobody's going to argue that your mother's imaginary, but the fact that we have different mothers may have implications theologically as far as interreligious dialogue. And that can be shared. It's not something to, to be debated ontologically or metaphysically. What, what is shared and what needs to be shared here, what we need to do with each other in the human community... So we need to hear one another more. We're not doing that enough, Michael. We're not sharing. What is it that I love when I love my God? And is this a subject that is brought up in the Vedas and the scriptures that you have studied? Yes. In the sense that, remember, we we started off by saying that there is no religion in the world that begins with this kind of pluralistic um, uh, invitation, this uh, openness, not just openness and acceptance, but interest. So what is it when you love your God? I want to know what is it that you love when you love your God? And I don't need to know if it's the same God or the different God. That's beside the point. One thing I like about what I bring out in Dance of Divine Love, the culminating act in this, uh, this story, is all of the coward maiden's join, uh, link arms in a great circle around Krishna. And when that happens, when the gopis, the Vrajagopikas, the coward maidens, link arms in a perfect circle, it's only then that Krishna duplicates himself multiple times to exclusively attend each one of the maidens. Translation. Until we as a human community link arms and do lots of hearing and sharing, it will not happen that divinity will come to each of us exclusively. Instead, we're claiming exclusivity without any inclusivity on a humanity level. This may be an ignorant question, but are we? Are you sort of um, advocating loving love? And is that different from loving God? It's not. Okay, good question. I mean, it's not as though we love love, but love activates us. That's what, that's when we know we're in relation. Because you can't have love without two. Right. Okay. So we agree, for example, the Bhaktas agree that with the Johannine expression, God is love. Mm-hmm. We, we agree with that. And that says that love has its source, finds its source in God. But we come along and say something in addition. Love is God. And even God is subsumed by love. 
even he is energized by love. Even that is higher than God. Hmm. Yeah. Look, Virgil, uh-huh. the poet Virgil. Yeah. Everyone knows the expression. Love conquers all. But no one knows what he says afterwards. So ye too should be conquered by love. Hmm. Which is ironic, because Virgil is already saying, we're all, all is conquered by love, but yet, somehow, we're not. All is, but we're not. So what's happening here? Virgil had the right idea. So we, too, should be conquered by love. That is what bhakti is about. Hmm. You mentioned, you know, uh, the importance of forming this ring. Of, yes. Of Unity. within the human uh, community, yes. So how do we get from here to there? Like, uh, what what are the, what's the plan or the method by which that's achieved? Well, I like what you're doing, Michael, right now. You're, You're interviewing, you're hearing. When we hear each other more and more, we can understand each other. We can even begin to appreciate one another. We can love one another. This is a little corny, Michael, so you'll have to forgive me. When we hear, we can add the T. Heart. Mm. Hearing leads to heart. We don't hear one another enough in this world. Even those that are in very dark places, they need to be heard. Yeah. We're too busy reacting to those people. We're not hearing them. Yeah. It's not easy. This is perhaps easier than hearing persons who are in dark places, you know, very dark places. So that will be a process. That is a process. But I like what you're doing here, Michael, because you're, you're wanting to hear. What, what are these experiences that these, you know, bhaktas are having, you know? I yeah. like that. I like that you're doing that. Well, thank you. Yeah. You, um... You know, you've mentioned some things that I think a lot of our listeners are not going to be familiar with. They're, they're not going to know about the gopis licking their arms, what exactly that refers to. They're not going to necessarily know what you mean when you say bhakti. Now, we have here the dance of divine love, yeah. and I'm wondering, would it be okay to share your translation of the five acts with the listeners of this podcast? Uh, not, not now if I were to narrate that translation and share it on the podcast. Is that a possibility? Oh, um, better yet, um, okay, now, of course, now I've, I, I hear, you know, little voices of intellectual property rights and all yes. this going off in my head and my editors and so on. And this book, by the way, um, published by Princeton, it's a 450-page book. Which and the price has gone up uh, over the years. It yeah. started at thirty-five, now it's sixty-five or sixty-two dollars, but it's going to be reprinted by Oxford University Press in a soft cover edition mm. for nineteen dollars, and uh, that'll be out in a year and a half. Now, what I've just come back from doing is I've I just came back from lecturing at the Smithsonian, talking about some of this content in this book. And I, hand, I gave a handout with a summary with some key verses from the text. And I think that you could read, and your listeners would easily appreciate what the whole thing was about. Oh, okay. That's why I gave it to them. Because right. there certainly, we didn't have enough time to do all, all 173 verses, and we didn't have enough time to read 450 pages company. So um, this was a nice summary, and I'll give that to you. Okay. That would be great. Yeah. That would be great. So, do you look back at your young self and and see a a foolish, misguided young man, or do you see someone who had a pretty good sense of what he needed to do and where he was going? I would see very much the latter. Even though it took a rather peculiar path, I, I dropped out of high school when I was 15. It was around here, too, Sandy Spring Friends School in Olney, Maryland. I dropped out of high school at 15, and my parents, very educated people, said, well, okay, why do you want to drop out? And I said, I want to practice my yoga all day. 
Now, I feel sorry for the parents that have a, a kid that, that will, you know, want to do that. But they had a lot of faith in me. And it wasn't until a year later that I ended up going back to school, but skipping 11th and 12th grade and going to Johns Hopkins University, where I began my academic path, you see, keeping all the while the other track, right, uh, of, of practice, deep, serious practice, but gaining the knowledge of Sanskrit, gaining the knowledge of literary criticism and historical studies and, and so on, even a little anthropology, language training and so on. All that then coupled with my own practice and realization and experience, then this gives me, you know, something to, uh, to work with that I've been doing that all these years. So, no, I, I have no regrets, no regrets at all. Very happy, privileged. Being a professor, you know, I work on Tuesday afternoons and Thursday afternoons. I mean, that's it. That's my whole work week, and I get four months off only. But I'd imagine you're translating, reading, oh, studying. I'm Although, working around the clock because I'm absorbed in this stuff. This is Swadhyaya yoga, as you mentioned earlier. So it's a, it's a, it sounds like a fantastic opportunity. Like you've found what you love to do. Oh yeah, which this, not everybody does. No, I feel very fortunate. No, I really. But I worked hard to do it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, all those years at Harvard were a real tapas or austerity, mm -hmm. as we say. Mm-hmm. And it's not exactly my cup of tea. Some people are more suited to the academic rigor and setting and endless research of this and that and the other. Really, my, of course, scholarship and, and highest level scholarship that I could produce is what I expect of myself, but not without something that's meaningfully presented to a reader. So Dance of Divine Love, even though it's published by Princeton, it is not strictly an academic book. It's meant for the really um, intelligent lay reader out there. Mm. Yeah. Now, if, if, uh, assuming that everything stays on track and uh, you're able to continue what you're doing, where do you hope, what do you hope happens? What do you see yourself achieving? More of what I've been doing, which is to illuminate the world of the heart for the bhakta. And for the bhakta, we mean the practitioner of bhakti yoga. And I also mean it, uh, the, the heart, yes, for, for the, the practitioner of bhakti yoga, but also to look to, to uh, facilitate uh, interfaith, interreligious mm. kinds of connections, to articulate it in that way. So it's not a closed language. Not a closed discussion. In fact, I'll tell you, Dance of Divine Love was originally my dissertation for Harvard University, for the PhD. And, and, and that degree is called comparative religion. And you are supposed to study two religions and enter into comparison. Hmm. When my advisor told me I really need to work on this because so little has been done on it, I asked him, where's the comparison? He said, the comparison's not in there but you're preparing it for comparative dialogue and discussion and sharing. It's not comparative in the sense of competition, as some earlier scholars of right. the 20th century did, but it's comparative in the sense of sharing. And is this sort of possibly, uh, is this like an anomaly? Is this something where the world is sort of going about its structured path, headed to maybe not a very good place, and this comes out of left field. Yeah. Like, nobody was ready for this, nobody saw this coming, but maybe it was essential. Okay. I think I know what you're getting at. <laughs> um, it needs to stay in left field because it's not something that would be in, in the center of things. Um, uh, the, the mystics typically have one foot in a totally different world and the other foot in this world. They never abandon this world, generally, but they're, they, they want to serve hearts in this world. At the same time, they can't help but be absorbed so deeply in that other world. So uh, there really is a kind of uh, paradoxical sort of uh, existence 
one foot in one world, one foot in the other world. But is this is this important for people who aren't mystics? Um, well, I think it is because then I can help them discover their hearts, the world of the heart. Now, what they do with that, you know, that's that's up to them. Yeah. But I see that as one of my duties. My one of my. Uh, it's also a pleasure to open mm -hmm. up people's hearts. I love doing this with students. Students who may just take my course because it has to fulfill a requirement. But then when they're in there, they discover, oh my gosh, I had no idea that knowledge could move into this direction. So I love that. Yeah, and you know what's interesting how it, in many ways it combines pleasure and wholesomeness, mm. which in the society I live in, in America, those don't in fact, those don't seem to go together too often. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like people will say, "So, are we going to party tonight?" Yeah, and that means get intoxicated. It right. doesn't even mean have pleasure, right? Necessarily, right? No, exactly, or pleasure of a lower kind. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And so this is sort of like the the possibility of pleasure without, well, with complete wholesomeness, with without any sort of anything that you might regret or feel defiled by later. Right. I like the way you're putting that, Michael. It's, it's exactly right. There is such a pleasure. Now, the way the Bhagavad Gita explains this, and it's really true, it's a pleasure that goes beyond the duality of pleasure and pain. That coin, mm. two sides, that double-sided coin, pleasure and pain. That's one kind of pleasure. But there's a higher pleasure. Pleasure goes beyond that dual-sided coin. And that's something that is developed and cultivated uh, as time goes on in a serious pursuit of the spiritual, on the spiritual path. Mm. Yeah. You know, I heard a quote recently that I liked a lot. Uh, and it was that um, self-knowledge is always bad news. However, I can see that 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 would not be the tradition that you are in and practicing. Uh, because uh, some meditators are, uh, we have a sort of a false identity that we construct where we paint ourselves as rosely as possible. We think of ourselves in grandiose and delusionary terms. And as we unravel that and come to terms with who we really are, it's sobering and not necessarily pleasurable. Mm -hmm, right. And that's why self, they would say self-knowledge is always bad news. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's cold water in your face, okay. basically. What that refers to is the conditioned self. You know, the Gita opens up with these two phrases. The Gita wastes absolutely no time. Dharmakshetre, Kurukshetre, Samaveta, Yoyotsavaha. So that's half the verse. Just the first part of the verse, Dharmakshetre, Kurukshetre. What that means is that we, our condition is that we are made of a true, genuine inner self, a true nature that we have. And then, but yet we carry the, this outer conditioned nature by our circumstances, family, culture, genes. nature, genes, whole bit. So, they come together, samaveta, yoyotsavaha, in conflict. Just like Arjuna and the armies came together. Okay, So the, 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 the conflict between our true inner nature with our outer conditioned nature, this is the rub. And then what to speak of socially, interactively, my conditioned nature coming in contact with your conditioned nature, and then either working or not working and all that, how much can I connect with your true inner nature, you see? And this is, this is where uh, we explore the heart. This is the facility of the heart. Now, yoga is to place this outer conditioned nature with the true inner, uh, true inner nature um, in harmony. So it's not necessarily bad news, Michael. Mm. It's only bad news if it's not harmonized with the true inner nature. And... I mean, I, I assume from what you've said that I have a true inner nature. You but, do. But I'm not real uh, familiar with it. 
That's, well, that's the idea. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm yeah. taking that on your word. Yes, but uh, you know, well, you're taking it on on, on on the word of the Gita, the teachings of the Gita, mm. and and also on experience and and uh, yeah, there's a true inner nature. It's so subtle and yet so powerful. And and it, the idea is to harmonize. In yoga, we're not trying to dismiss or obliterate or disintegrate mm. the outer nature and the conditioning and so on. In fact, that makes you interesting. Look, you came from here, you did this, you did that, you know, um, uh, you experienced this, this was very traumatic, whatever. Um, but, but together in dialogue, there is something that happens that can activate. If dialogue is truly deep dialogue, that activates an inner nature. That activates your true inner nature in this process of sharing. And it sounds to me like you're referring to sort of a deep dialogue and conversation as maybe your favorite kind of yoga. <laughs> okay. Um, my favorite kind of yoga is to have a very wide frame in which mm -hmm. I see everything participating in Krishna's being. Um, to see Krishna reflected in everything, to see Krishna reflected in you, uh, to maybe see your true nature in a way that maybe you don't, uh, uh, to be able to develop that premanetra, the eye of purest love, uh, to develop that and to be able to receive anyone on any terms. But how do you sort of synthesize the idea of the frame and then the conversation? Like, how, how did those two go together? Um, the frame, uh, a person in dialogue, uh, the other interlocutor, if you will, um, being framed uh, by me, doesn't know about the frame. They don't know their part, that they're a part of my picture. Hmm. And they don't know how much I can see them reflecting something of the divine, and the divine intrinsically and extrinsically, the divine uh, through, uh, or the divine coming through them to me. They have. They don't have any idea. Well, they they don't know what you see, right? And, and I mean, in one sense, that's a truism. I don't know what you yeah. see, I, and you don't know what I see, and so. On. But we're talking about someone who's, um, who's who's in some sense in the yoga of relationships, you know, in the yoga of sharing, in the yoga of dialogue um, there's a part of that dialogue that will remain hidden to anyone who's not part of the dialogue within meditation hmm. that just will remain hidden until one cultivates the dialogue within meditation uh, it, it's, it's imp I mean it's just impossible it's impossible to describe it You know, there's there's a, uh, I mean, you talk about pleasure, a, a pleasure of a of a diff, of a different different order. Yeah. You know, that I can I can experience without being caught up in the dualities that may be going on within you or between us. Right. Right now, I'm not feeling much duality between us, so we're good. Okay. Right. So uh, the idea is is uh, the mystical experience brings things up to the surface that you didn't know were there. And by the way, in translating these books and writing these books, that was exactly the process. I had no idea, even after reading the Gita for decades, until HarperCollins asked me to write this and translate it. I had no idea. No idea. That the Gita said the things that I found. Oh, I see. Yes, and... You say on your site, you have a you have a website called secretyoga.com. Yeah, we have that. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's, a much neglected site, I might say. <laughs> well, I, maybe I can help a little, yeah. a little with that, uh, because I'll have a link to it on the uh, on the podcast description. No, neglected in the sense of not updating. Oh, updated, uh, neglected by me. Oh, I see. And I see. and and uh, my partner, Krishna Kant. Okay. 
But it says in there that you discovered a secret while you were translating or working on the Dance of Divine Love. What happened? What happened? It says that you you discovered a secret. Yeah. Or the secret. Yeah. That that is that was the basis of secretyoga.com. Ah, yes, okay, yes. That would be pointing to the Bhagavad Gita. Well, it also involves okay, the the as I point out in the textual illuminations, the last chapter, the 18th chapter of the Gita, it talks about a great secret, a greater secret and the greatest secret of all. And that's what I didn't know was there. I I didn't realize that Krishna was actually summarizing everything and building on it further for the last chapter. And basically, the, 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 the and, and the narrator calls the whole teaching Guhyam Param Yogam, the, great, um, the supreme secret of yoga. So, of course, you know, I began asking, what is that supreme secret of yoga? I mean, yoga is very complex in the Gita. But the supreme secret of yoga comes down to Krishna saying, I am embracing all, and I'm waiting in eternity for you to return the embrace. I desire you. I love you. You know, I want you to come to me. I counted no fewer than 22 places in the Gita where Krishna expresses this. But it's, it's subtly woven throughout the other teachings. So you wouldn't notice it unless you knew to look for it. And that's how it's secret. It's, it's cleverly disguised and kind of embedded here and there, woven with a subtle thread among the thick threads of its teachings. And this was an epiphany. Yes, major. Major. Sarvaguyatamambuya shranum me paramangvachaha ishtosime dritam itti tatovachyami teyatam. That verse, 18, 18th chapter, 64th verse. Krishna says, my supreme message, my, the greatest secret of all, please hear this once again, finally, you are so much loved by me. It's so simple. Hmm. But it's not a love that, uh, by which Krishna threatens souls or manipulates or coerces or you know, um, condemns and so on. It is a, an unconditional love from an unconditional being. It basically, to anybody, it could be translated simply as we live ultimately in a loving universe. It's ultimately loving. May not feel that way at times, you know, when you have to pay taxes, which is coming up. Yeah. Yeah. So it may not feel so loving, but it ultimately is loving. And this is, um, this is particularly theistic. Uh, it's not what you would find in Buddhism. I don't think. It depends on what Buddhism you're talking about. Okay. You see, while there is the, in bhakti this passion for divinity cultivated, it doesn't exclude something of what the Buddhists do, but their focus is on compassion. While bhaktas are you know, cultivating a passion for serving the divine, Buddhists are not focusing on divinity, but on humanity. Mm -hmm. And right. they're focusing on, on compassion, especially the bodhisattvas in Mahayana Buddhism and so yeah. on. Um, so it's, it's different, but there are things shared. There are things shared. Because in bhakti, there is compassion for all living beings. There is respect and honor for all living entities. Uh, there is a love cultivated in, in a bhakta, for the hearts of all living beings. You know, I'd like to just ask one last question, and that is, if you have a, an appreciation for this idea of a, of a loving God and a loving universe, mm. uh, but have no actual uh, honest experience of that, mm -hmm. what should you do? Um, two things I would recommend, uh, if you're interested in exploring that and just kind of seeing what it's like. One is, uh, read the Bhagavad Gita several times. 
see how Krishna, behind his teachings, is ultimately trying to call us to him. He's famous for playing the flute, you know, mm. right? He plays the flute. That is the love call of divinity to us. He is calling us. He is calling us in and through everything, if we know to hear it. And the more we understand what Krishna's call is about, and and the more we hear Krishna calling us through the verses of the Gita, the more we will have access to that experience. The second thing is, be around people who do experience it, mm. and who do teach it. Uh, be around uh, persons who feel inspired in every fiber, you know, of their every cell in their body. You know, what be be around someone who's absorbed. It's kind of like finding a mentor, right? A mentor. Something like a that. A guide. Yes, indeed. Or just to be in the vicinity of someone who's having that experience or yes. knows about it. Yes. Yes. Sort of like you want to catch their disease. Exactly. You want the uh Yes, you want to catch what they have. That's right, exactly. That's right. That's right. It's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Graham Schweig, also known as Garuda Das. Uh, you've been listening to the Questions for the Sages podcast. I'm Michael Scherer. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Dr. Graham Schweig for being on the Questions for the Sages podcast. I had a great time. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Questions for the Sages. I'm Michael Sherwood.